Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. We are continuing today our series of sermons on the parables of Jesus. If you've been with us all along, you've seen us uh, cover several of those. And we're going to keep on going a little more. Today we're coming to a pair of very short parables in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 31 to 33. And we're dealing with two parables today because they are basically saying the same thing in a little different way. These parables we're going to look at this morning are less like stories and more like simple metaphors or better yet like similes. Remember what a simile is? Uh, it uses what? Like or as. And that's what we have here. The kingdom of heaven is like. And so these little, tiny little short micro stories, more like similes. But don't let the shortness of these parables fool you. Because in both of these parables, our Lord uses a few words to talk about huge things. Huge things. So follow along as I read Matthew 13, 31 to 33. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So what is Jesus saying? He uses two very short stories that would, be, would have been understandable by those who first heard him. And they're very simple. The first is about a man who planted a little seed that grew into a large tree. The second is about a woman who put some yeast into her flour to make bread. I mean, simple enough, right? Well, actually, no. Not simple at all. We are so far removed from the place and the time of these parables that we don't get how weird they actually are. We read this little story about the mustard seed growing up into a tree, and we think, well, you know, I've, uh, I've never seen a mustard plant grow that big. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen a mustard plant. Mustard comes out of a bright yellow bottle. I didn't know mustard was a plant. I thought it was a sauce. But anyway, I guess I just, uh, you know, this must be some different kind of mustard plant than I'm used to. So, okay. And we read this little story about flour and yeast, and we think, okay, well, that's simple enough. I mean, a woman made three loaves of bread, and that happens at our house all the time. Okay, no big deal. But the thing is, both of these parables are short, but they're crazy. We hear them when we think, well, okay, whatever. But when the disciples heard them, they would have thought, wait a minute, what? That's crazy. 
That's not how it works. And the craziness is actually a major part of the point. And it's a point that's easy for us to miss because we don't see the craziness. Now, here's what I mean. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about a mustard seed growing into a tree? Well, the commentaries go all over the place with this. Maybe you've heard or read some of these things. Some say that the kind of mustard plant that he's talking about is a kind of common shrub or tree that grows in the Middle East that could grow up to 20 or 30 feet high, and basically is a tree. There is such a tree. You can read about it online, which I did a lot of this week. It's called the toothbrush tree. Because they take the, the sticks and work them a little bit and they become like a little brush and they actually brush their teeth with them. All right, there is such a tree. But the thing is about that tree is it doesn't have the small seed that's key to the point of this parable. It doesn't have that small seed, which is actually part of the main point. It's more likely, I think, that Jesus is talking about a very common plant over there called black mustard. And this is a plant that grew in Palestine, and it had a tiny little seed. It's the same plant that Jesus talks about, remember, in Matthew 17, 20, when he's talking about faith. And he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, tiny, tiny little thing, the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll go. And nothing will be impossible to you. He's talking about a plant that does, in fact, have a tiny little seed. Now, the problem with that is that the black mustard plant only gets about eight feet tall, max. You know, so about this tall. Think of a great big uh, goldenrod plant that you see in the, in the summer, or a, a milkweed, or a, in any of those kinds of plants that you see growing in the, in the ditches, in the, in the fields. It's that kind of plant. Would anyone say that a goldenrod plant can grow into a, a tree with branches that all the birds of the heaven can nest in? It's just, that's crazy. And so the disciples would have heard that, and they would have known what he was talking about, and they would have said, huh, that's weird. Mustard plants don't get that big. What's he talking about? So what's weird about the second parable, the parable of the leaven? Verse 33 says, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. We read that, and we have no idea how big a peck is. What in the world is a peck of flour? Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. What is a peck? You know, I don't know, it must mean enough for three loaves of bread. Yeah, that's what it means, three loaves. That's what it means, loaves, yeah. But no, actually, this is a massive amount of flour. This isn't enough for just three loaves of bread. This is actually five or six gallons of flour. Now, any of you ladies, when you're making your bread, do you say, I know, I'm going I'm to get out five or six gallons of flour and make some bread. Ann Wegener said in the first service, maybe one or two on a big day. But six? That's weird. When was the last time any of you made that much 
bread. It's weird. Now, if you know your Bible extremely well, and I mean extremely because this is a really obscure little point, you might remember another woman who made a huge batch of bread with a huge bucket of flour. Anyone know? Was that you? Yeah, Sarah. Sarah. In Genesis 18. Let me read this to you. So you get the, I know my Bible extremely well prize. <laughs> Genesis 18, 1 to 8. Listen to this. I'm going to read this to you, and, and, and I think it's important. Now the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent of, to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of flour. It's actually the same amount of flour. Knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Now think about this. Why in the world did Sarah make so much bread? Who are these men, by the way? They're angels. Okay, so do angels have really big appetites? You just keep putting the bread in there and it just keeps on, you know, I mean, what? What's going on? What is it that the angels are there to tell Sarah? Does anyone remember besides Adam? Do you remember? This time next year, what? You're going to have a son. And what has God said about that son? Abraham, I'm going to make you what? A great nation, right? A great nation. And how many descendants will he have? As many as what? Stars of the sky, sand of the seashore. And in you, Abraham, through this son... What? All the families of the earth will be blessed. On an occasion like that, Sarah break, bakes a lot of bread. Why? Well, it's probably a mark of extreme hospitality, extravagant hospitality. This is, at any rate, weird. It's out of place. It's literally extraordinary. But it's connected to what God says to Abraham. All the nations. Part of the meaning of these parables, both of them, is tied up with this unexpected element. Mustard doesn't grow into a tree with branches that can hold the birds of the air. That's not how it works. Housewives don't typically bake a batch of bread with five or six gallons of flour. That, that's not normal. So what's going on here? Well, with the weirdness in mind, let's look at each of these parables and see what Jesus is saying. First of all, what is he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. 
right? The kingdom of heaven is like mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? What is he talking about, the kingdom of heaven? Where do we go to learn about the kingdom of heaven? I think the key to understanding the kingdom of heaven is in Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to read to you a large section out of Daniel chapter 2. And it's several verses. I'm going to read to you verses 31 to 45. All right? And I think this is incredibly important for us to understand the whole point of what Jesus is saying in these parables. So I need you to follow along and pay attention. Okay? Look at what he says. This is Daniel. Daniel chapter 2. He is a subject of a king. The king is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has had weird dreams. You remember the story? And the weird dream is so weird that he has no idea what it means. And so he calls his wise men and says to them, I want you to tell me what this dream means. But of course, anyone can make up the meaning of a dream. I mean, that happens all the time, you know. He says, I don't want you just to tell me what the dream means. I want you to first tell me what the dream was. And then I'll believe that your interpretation is true. Right? Sound like a fair deal? And so God reveals to Daniel what the dream is and what it means. Daniel 2, verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there is a single great statue That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. 
And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. What's going on? This statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream as a revelation from God is a visual representation of the kingdoms of the earth leading up to the time of Jesus Christ. The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. The arms and chest of silver is the Persian Empire. The belly and thighs of bronze are the Greek Empire. The legs of iron are the Roman Empire. And the feet partly of iron and partly of clay is the divided Roman Empire. That's what God is talking about when he reveals this history of the world to Nebuchadnezzar. The vision clearly indicates that Jesus Christ will come at the time of the Roman Empire in its decline, the divided Roman Empire. Daniel says, in the days of those kings, the days of those, the kings of this divided Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So in the declining days of the Roman Empire, God will set up his kingdom. And it is unconquerable, universal, unbreakable, and unending. The kingdom that succeeds Rome is the kingdom of heaven. And the catalyst for this kingdom coming is the stone cut out without hands, which is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is talking about in these parables. That is what everyone who heard him would have thought when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like. They all would have thought, because they knew the scriptures as Jews, He's talking about what Daniel saw, what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see that these two parables say essentially the same thing as Daniel chapter 2. So what about the parable of the mustard seed? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its its branches. What's the point? The kingdom of heaven starts out as a small thing, but then grows to be a large thing. In fact, it grows to be a ridiculously large thing. A tree. Mustard plants don't grow that big. It grows to become this ridiculously large thing. And it grows to the point of being a tree large enough to shelter the birds of the sky. What does that mean? Well, you'll notice in your Bible and on the screen that part of the text right there, verse 32, that says the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. See how that's in capital letters? That's because it's yelling at us, right? That's our translation's way. Translations we use, some of you will have the same one in your lap. 
When you see all capital letters, it's saying this is a quote from the Old Testament or an allusion to something in the Old Testament. So what is this alluding to? What is this quoting? The Old Testament uses that language of birds coming and nesting in the branches of a tree a few times. And each time it's a symbol of a great kingdom with peoples flocking to it. There's a few. I'm going to read one of you, one of them to you. Daniel chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, Daniel says. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. This is a great, glorious, huge kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, and the birds of the sky came and nested in its branches. He is talking about his kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so the point of this first parable, the parable of the mustard seed, is that the kingdom of heaven starts a small, insignificant, tiny, little, despised thing. But grows into a great tree, a great kingdom that gives shelter to the nations. Now, what about the parable of the leaven? Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The details of that parable, that little story, are very simple. A woman puts some yeast in a batch of flour until the flour is leavened, but we've already seen that there's a weirdness to it, because women don't typically do it with that much flour, right? So that's weird. And there's another question about this seemingly simple parable. What does he mean by leaven? Is leaven... A good thing or a bad thing? Our interpretation of this parable completely depends on how we answer that question. It totally depends on the answer to the question. Is leaven a good thing or a bad thing? The symbol of leaven in the Bible, in fact, is usually what? Bad. So how do we know that? Well, think of uh, uh, Passover, the Feast of Passover. When God commands his people, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Jesus picks up this image of leaven in Matthew chapter 16. He says this kind of thing over and over again. He says, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He wasn't talking about yeast. He was talking about hypocrisy and sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul uses the same kind of language. He says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven or the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So it seems like leaven is a bad thing. And so many preachers have concluded that this parable about leaven filling flour must be about something bad. It must be about the growing wickedness in the world. It must be about the growing corruption, maybe, in the church. And here's one preacher's reasoning about this that gets him to that conclusion. He says this, This is one of the basic laws in reading the Bible. Scripture never uses a symbol in two conflicting ways. It uses them consistently throughout He says, this is very important for you to know. Learn how Scripture uses a symbol and then employ it the same way wherever it appears. Then you will come out with a clear understanding of what the Scripture is teaching. Anyone have a problem with that? Here's the problem with that. The Bible's filled with mixed symbols all over the place. So, for example, um, lions... Good things or bad things? Well, yeah. It depends, doesn't it? So, Proverbs 28, 15, like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. There it is. Lions are bad. But on the other hand, Proverbs 28, 1, same chapter, same book. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Well, now, wait a minute. That would be a good thing. 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. All right? But on the other hand, Revelation 5.5. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Who's that? So a lion can be either the devil or Jesus. Oh, but the Bible never uses mix, you know, never mixes its symbols. It's always, it's always one thing. Really? What about snakes? Snakes good or bad? Oh, really? <laughs> Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so I, if I am lifted up, will draw him into myself. Oh, yeah, there's always that. What about fire? There's a Sunday school class in the book of James, and the book of James says that the tongue is like a fire, set on fire by hell, and it sets on the course of your life on fire. Remember that passage? And yet our God, Hebrews says, is what? A consuming fire. This is how the Bible works. It's not a code book. And so is leaven. The same thing is true with yeast or leaven. It is used in different ways and it's certainly not always associated with evil. For example, Leviticus 7.13, with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. And you see that all through Leviticus. Sometimes it's unleavened, sometimes it's leavened. It's not in and of itself evil. 
And so when this pastor says, Scripture never uses a symbol in two conflicting ways, it uses them consistently throughout, it's clearly wrong. We need to look at the context of the parable. Let the context tell us what the symbol means. So what does this parable mean? Is the leaven a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's clearly a good thing. Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. How is it like yeast? Well, it's like yeast in that once you stick it in the the dough, there's no going back. (laughs) And it grows, and it fills, and it permeates, and it changes the dough. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It spreads until it is all leavened. And not just a little bit of flour, but even a huge, outrageous batch of flour. Even that. So now, let's put these parables together, see what they mean, and then think about how they apply to us. The main point of these two parables is this. The kingdom of heaven will start small, but it will grow. They both have that in common. In fact, it will grow until it fills the earth. All the nations will find shade in its branches. All realms of life in this world, the whole lump, will be leavened, influenced, changed by the work of the gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I know that every one of us finds that hard to believe. But remember, this is exactly what God told Daniel would happen in Daniel chapter 2. It's exactly what he said. The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and what? Filled the whole earth. And it's a kingdom. In the days of those kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. I bet you you could call that the kingdom of heaven, don't you think? The God of heaven sets up a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The scriptures are filled with that kind of thing. It's no secret that Jesus fully intends to conquer the world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of a little tiny ragtag, huddling, scared group of people in the corner. Right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so go and take it. And make disciples of all the nations. He intends to do it through the expansion of his church, through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is, after all, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what it's called. Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. When he comes on the scene, the first thing he says... Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent and believe the gospel. This is what the apostles are constantly doing in the book of Acts. 
Acts 19.8, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Over and over again, this is what they're talking about, the kingdom of God. The good news, the gospel, includes the proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is here. What Nebuchadnezzar saw is here. It's coming to pass. The kingdom of God that will crush all other kingdoms has come. Has come. Revelation 11.15, the seventh angel sounded and there there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world. We just sung it a couple weeks ago. What? The Hallelujah Chorus, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of this world is become, in the King James, has become. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Isn't that what Daniel said? Isn't that what Daniel said? But this coming of Christ's kingdom will not happen overnight like the disciples thought. Daniel said the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is gradual. It takes place over a long period of time. Starts small, grows until it fills the whole earth. And it comes, and it is coming, through the preaching of the gospel to the nations. This is why our Lord taught us to pray like this. Our Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But even though it's a gradual thing, it's a sure thing. The mustard plant keeps on growing. The leaven keeps on spreading. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God has come. It is advancing. It will continue to advance. The kingdom of God is not America, for crying out loud. The kingdom of God crushes all kingdoms. It'll crush America too. And that's okay. Revelation eleven seventeen. We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. What are you afraid of? Why are you timid? Why are you discouraged? Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Not will be, but is. But here's the thing. We all have a hard time believing that, don't we? If the Bible as a whole is so clear about the advance of God's kingdom in this world through the preaching of the gospel, why is it so hard for us to believe? We say, well... The world is too big and too bad to be changed by the gospel. What does God say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that but that the world might be saved through him. Are you sure you know better than God? Are you sure? We say, 
Our nation is too far gone to repent. Batten down the hatches. Build the bunker. But God says, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. That's Psalm 86. Would it be a wondrous deed for our nation to come to know the Lord? Yeah. So? You are great and you do wondrous deeds. All the nations will come. Are you sure you know better than God about this? Brothers, sisters? We say, but my family, my family is so corrupt and so wicked. And it goes back and it's deep and there's no way. There's just no way. There's no way that my family will ever come to know the Lord. What does God say? All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22. So which is it? Who do you trust? Who do you believe? Yourself? We say, I, I am too much of a sinner. The gospel will never really change me. I read it, I read the Bible, I see what it tells me to do, I see what it holds out to me, and it's impossible. It's impossible. What does God say? Colossians chapter 1. The gospel has come to you. Has the gospel come to you? Yeah. The gospel has come to you. Just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. It's just, Paul knows better than you what's going on. The gospel has come to you, and it's constantly growing and bearing fruit, and this is what it's doing in you. Don't call it impossible for crying out loud. So, will we believe the word of God or won't we? What? You remember the hymn, what more can he say than to you he has said? What more do you need? He's laid it out for you. Here it is. We don't believe the gospel will change the world or this nation or our families. Why? Bottom line, why? Because we don't believe it'll change us. And man, oh man, isn't that awful convenient? Because if the gospel's not going to change me, that means I get to keep on going just the way I am. Just the way I am. But that's not faith, is it? 
But listen, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Believe the gospel. Believe the words of our Lord. Believe the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's good news. That means he's at work. That means he is changing you if you believe. That means he can change your family. It means he can change this nation. It means he can change the world. It's what he's going to do. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you the fact that we do not believe these things. We just don't believe them. And I pray that you would make us sorry for that. And give us faith, we pray. Give us faith to see your work and to know it's real and to see it at work in our own lives and in the lives of our families, the lives of our neighbors, lives of our state, our nation, and the world. Have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.